Hello, plant friends. Happy to join you again today for another conversation and episode of the Plant Proof Podcast. For regular listeners, welcome back. Glad you're enjoying the show. For new listeners, my name is Simon Hill and I'm the creator of plantproof.com and the Plant Proof Podcast. Absolutely awesome to have you here with us today. I created plantproof.com and this podcast, this show, to deliver 100% agenda-free information to help all of us live more consciously and mindfully so that we can make healthier decisions in our life. Each week, I get to sit down with a new guest and try to make it so that it's like you're in the room with us. I absolutely love this show. I get to connect and learn from amazing folks from all around the world with brilliant minds. And then with a few clicks, in just a few clicks, I can share the content with you. This then hopefully provokes positive thoughts and action. This week, I sat down with legendary New York City punk rocker, three-time author, plant-based Ironman, John Joseph. John was quick to remind me that he does Ironmans, not marathons. Not marathons, Simon. So I, to, so I had to make sure I got that right in the intro. Together, we explored his wild, when I say wild, I mean wild past, which involved growing up in the streets of New York City, in and out of foster homes, being sexually abused, getting involved in fights, dealing drugs, being incarcerated, joining the Navy, joining the Hare Krishna community, punk rock and his band, the Chromags, why he stopped eating animal products, how he fell into Ironman competitions, what his new positive mental attitude or PMA book is all about, and so much more. And if you're in New York over spring, summer, be sure to do one of his Sunday walking tours. Absolutely epic information about the 70s, 80s, and 90s history of the Lower East Side. Now, I told John over dinner, we, we went to Organic Grill in East Village. You guys know I love that place. I told him that I was going to have to tick the explicit box when I published this episode. There's a lot of swearing. So if you have kids in the car or don't like swearing, then this episode isn't going to be one of your favorites. So just be mindful of when you listen to it and who's around you. In saying that, if you don't mind swearing, there is some invaluable information and truly real information in this podcast. John grew up in some crazy, crazy times, had to do some crazy things to stay alive. But as we say in the podcast, it's not what happens to someone in life, it's what they do about it. Hope you enjoy the episode. John Joseph, welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. Welcome to my city, Chinatown. How <laughs> much? Chinatown. Here we are. Has this place changed, boy? What's What's different about this place now from back in the day? Well, the Chinese have a word for white people. They call them guaylo. So it's a lot of guaylos. <laughs> but a- right over here in this bank is it was an abandoned bank. They they renovated it, but in the eighties. My friend used to do like the biggest outlaw party called Payday. And everybody, Red Alert, Kid Capri, like the biggest DJs in the world. He had fucking De La Soul, everybody. Tribe Called Quest. Not at that particular venue, but they used to do an illegal club in that, in the bank wow. over there. And nobody was snitched. So That's it's, crazy. it's, a, it's a big difference. Yeah, <laughs> New York's changed. This is a pretty sort of like cool area now. I notice there's a lot of new cafes and things popping yeah, up around yeah. here. Well, there was a, 
a lot of gang activity in the 80s. There was, you know, I talk about this on the walking tour. I don't know if you're going to yeah. take it tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to be there tomorrow. It's going to be, how do they say it's the crack? Yeah, it's the crack. <laughs> but there was some serious gangs down here. Uh, the ghost shadows and fucking real, real deal shit. When's this in the 80s? In the 80s and 70s, yeah. Yeah, cool. But, uh, Did you walk over here? Huh? You walked over here tonight? No, I rode a city bike. You rode the city bike. Which, go figure, right? I locked it up. Yeah, put it over there. I've been on the bike all fucking day, five hours and something, and one hour run off the bike. You're training for something? Yeah, I have uh, Ironman uh, Florida coming up in November 4th. Yeah. How many days a week you got to train at the moment? Yeah, every day. Every day. No days off. I mean, I'm tapering. Tomorrow's my last long run. I got to do three hours. And then uh, I start tapering down the distance stuff. I work with a coach, Samantha Murphy. She's uh, legit. So she does uh, training peaks and all this shit. It's my, uh, you know, I, I did uh, 10 Ironmans without a coach. And she coached me for this first half Ironman I did in May. And uh, yes. Was there a lot of things that you, that she changed? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I would just put together a program and just do whatever the fuck. And it's not. But like from Google, YouTube. Nah, just like, you know, I, I would just go fucking ride 120 miles and get off the bike and fucking run 15 and, you know, or, or just do distance swimming in the pool. I would just swim the distance of the Ironman, not knowing how to build endurance through he has me doing different sets of, you know, pool buoy, kickboard, and uh, speed sets, and you know, so it, it's it's a it's a lot it's a lot to learn, you know. But uh, part of the game, like anything else, martial arts, boxing, construction, you gotta. You, I talk, you know, I talk about that in the new book. You need mentors, you need teachers, and you know. So we got a bit of territory to cover. Yeah, a lot of the listeners. Perhaps not all of them, but a lot of them will know you as the toughest. And and I'm going to use a word that you don't like to wear that you don't like. Particularly, I've heard you say that the toughest vegan. I think people have called you (laughs) before. But you 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 live a plant based lifestyle. You I live I I live I I uh, I live a vegan lifestyle. I don't use leather. I don't use anything with animal products in it. I don't you know. I just refuse to be labeled by like my diet. So, you know, it's it's no big deal. I don't care. I mean, they say that shit all the time, but I wouldn't say I'm the toughest at all by <laughs> any stretch. I mean, I think I'm resilient. I will say that. I've bounced back from some fucked up shit. Mental toughness to me is the most important because I've seen a lot of people growing up on the streets of New York that put on a big show like they were tough and whatever the fuck. And then when the real challenges come, those are the guys that fold, you know, like a cheap suit. And then the guy that's unassuming, that's the dude that's going to fucking push through. And I want to get into that when we talk about your new book and, and having mental strength and positivity. You, you were also a member of the Cro-Mags. You've now authored Two books. Three books. Three books. There we go. Three books. And TV pilots I wrote. I fucking wrote some adapt scripts. You know, screenplays and stuff. 
Absolutely. So take us back. Take us back because, like I said, this is the first time a lot of a lot of the lampproof community, the listeners, yeah. have have probably been introduced to you. Where where did it all start? Where were you raised? My journey of insanity started at the moment of conception, really, because my uh, my father was a professional fighter, and and actually my mom left him because of the brutal shit that he was doing to her. And then uh, he broke in and raped her. So that's how I was conceived, you know, through a rape. The police wouldn't do anything. And, you know, technically they were still married. And my mother's Catholic, whatever the fuck, Irish. So she would, you know, the family was like, you can't keep this baby. And I mean, think about it. You know, she had my brother when she was 17, me at 18, and then my other brother at 20. So by the time she was 20 years old, she had three kids, two of which were conceived from rapes. To the same father? Uh, yeah. You know, he boxed at Custom Autos, at Gramercy Gym. Like, he was pretty well known. Like, the pro fighters all knew who he was, and he had so much potential. And we see that a lot. People with a lot of potential, and then they just go south. Something snaps. And for him, it was the alcohol. And he wanted to be a gangster. You know, hanging out with the Westies and fucking, you know. So this was in Manhattan? Uh, he was in Astoria, Queens. Queens, cool. But my mom lived in Manhattan, too. She was raised up by the 59th Street Bridge. Like, you know, my grandparents had a bunch of kids up there, Irish, Czech family. I mean, it, it got to the point where we were just on the run constantly from him and had to keep just moving. He would find out where she was, break in, beat the shit out of her, take all her money. He was a fu- He's a fucking animal. And then it was just, I remember we were in this fucked up, dirty-ass apartment, and uh, it's like the last memory I have of him, he, he broke in in the middle of the night and just was beating my mom all over the apartment. And, and uh, we, I tried to stop him. This was in 69. I was seven years old. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm born in 62. And then the police took us away. I just remember looking out the back of the police car and it was fucking pissing rain and the ambulance came for her. I mean, you know, she was on medication for depression and anxiety and then, you know, tried to take her own life. And, and then the state was like, that's it. You know, they put us in in a in, in a orphanage and then in a, in a foster homes. One of which for seven years we were abused every fucking day. They just had a bunch of kids there that they just did it for the money. So and then they had two kids of their own, and we had to see them getting everything they wanted: new cars, new clothes, the best food, and they were feeding us. Uh, we couldn't go in the house. We had to sleep in the garage on, on like mats. What kind of food were they feeding you? Well, the, just not even food. I mean, they, whatever, rotten, cold cuts. Constantly, she hated the filling of Oreos. So she would scrape the filling, spit it in a bowl, eat the wafer, and then wipe that, put that on moldy bread and serve it to us with tea. And then, you know, we just, we had to like literally steal the dog's food. The dog ate better than us. We would have to like steal the dog food to eat. 
And then we started learning how to scam and beg on the street. And they would drop us off at church and we would go out the back door, in the front door, out the back door and, and, and beg and say, oh, you know, they didn't show up to get us. Can, can you give me uh, some money so we can eat? We're hungry. Like they've got to pick us up from church. Or, and was and that then fairly we, successful? Like people yeah. I money. mean, and then like we would eat out, we would eat through the supermarket, go up and down the aisles and fucking. And then we started finding out, my brother found out where they kept the money because they couldn't put it in the bank because they're supposed to be spending it on clothes and food for us. So then we started stealing from them, stealing it back, stealing so out. They money. were getting money from. The yeah, they state. were getting three hundred dollars a month in the sixties for each kid, and they were supposed to give clothes and food. And I, I, you know, I told this story in my book. Like they was they, you know, the father just beat us constantly. He used to have ring, these heavy rings. This Italian fucking, this Italian dude, and he, you know. He would just bash us in the fucking head, back slap us. Like we always had bruises and had to tell the school, oh, you know, we did it playing sports. And were you like did social services and nah, well, they, they gave us a uh, they gave us a uh, a social worker and he would come like once every six months and then they would scare the shit out of us. Like I remember I complained at school once and he took me to a mental institution called Pilgrim State and smashed my face against the fence and all the mental patients were fucking gouging my eyes and yelling and like, and he was like, if you open your mouth again, we're going to put you in here. And everything was an inconvenience to them. I had an abscess tooth that I had 103, 104 fever and they made me lay with that fucking infection for two, three days and wouldn't take me to the doctor to the point where I just... I went to school, my face swelled out like this, and then the nurse sent me to the hospital. They were just fucked up. They were just fucking animals, like, you know, and then they, the older kids were sexually abusing me and my brothers just doing shit to us and, like, fucking, it, you know, it was just, it was just, it was hell. It was seven years of hell, and I got a lot of anger when I came out of there. They finally, we always wanted our mother to take us back, were you keeping in touch with her during the Yeah, like years? after a while, like for when they first put you in the foster home, they want you to bond with them so that we weren't allowed to see our mother. But then after like, I think it was like after almost a year and a half or two years and she was better, we started going home for visits and we just wanted her to take us home. We She kept saying, I'm getting better. I'm going to take you home, this, that, the other thing. And then we never told her what they were doing to us because... She couldn't handle it. So we just wrote everything down in a diary. Everything they did, everything they fed us, everything that was going on in the home. We kept this diary. My brother did, my older brother, Ian, and we hid the diary in the garage. You know, she kept promising she was going to take us home, but she had a new boyfriend. And as they say on the street, we was cock blocking. So he got pissed off when we would come home to see her. He would get really pissed off and... You know, it was kind of like, it's either them or me. And she chose him. And I remember, you know, it was like Christmas. We we wanted to come home. And then, you know, we found out, like, he's not taking us home. And then I was like, you don't even know what they're doing in there to us. They're, 
you know, and she had a nervous breakdown and like almost was trying to kill herself. And we had to call my uncle and we're kids mm. on a home. So visit. much to deal with. And then she is trying to cut her wrists and take bottles of pills. And we're having to restrain her at three kids. And then we called my uncle and he came and they put her in the hospital. And then like, that was it. We, we, we didn't get, you know, visits after that for a while, you know, it was, it was, it was brutal. And then when I got out of there, we finally realized they wasn't going to, we wasn't going home and then we turned the diary in and it was like 74, 75. So like, yeah, so like six plus years we were there and then uh, the state closed the house down. They took all the kids out and they separated. My younger brother went to another foster home and then me and my older brother went to St. John's Home for Boys in Rockaway Beach and then that's where the next level of craziness started because uh, we were the only white kids in there and uh, the neighborhood was, they called it the Irish Riviera. So it was all poor white Irish people in Rockaway Beach in the 70s and they didn't want those black kids in the home there. So they would beat them up constantly. They jumped me one night, like 10 of the kids in the home beating the shit out of me and so there was a lot of racial stuff going yeah, on. Yeah, oh, a ton of racial shit. It was fucking crazy. And the funny thing was, like, I always dressed, like, thinking I was black. I had fucking platform shoes and all this crazy shit. When they put us, after that one foster home, they found a home, and these people had the same last name as us, McGowan. My name is John J. McGowan, John Joseph McGowan. When the social worker read the diary of what they did to us, he fucking, he broke down crying. This grown man was just like, and then he's like, found us a home in Garden City. And they were, they were the fucking rich beyond. He was the vice president to the bank. They lived on Poplar Street. It was, I just remember the first time we ever walked in there, I smelled something that, I never smelt before in my life and it was laundry because we never got to wash our clothes. We, we wore shit until it fell off and then we climbed in the poor. They made us climb in the poor box and get more clothes. Every kid had to bathe in the same water in that home. It, it was insane. So everything, we found ways to get around everything because we would, we, we would get the key to the, to the gas station and go shower in there, like bucket showers in the bathroom. Like whatever it was, we always, we always found a way to hustle around it. That's where that, that's where that hustling shit came from for, for me. You know, this family, we showed up there with no possessions. They were like, what the fuck is this? Where's all your stuff? I was like, this is everything I have. And it was one plastic bag. Did they like sort of receive a bit of a heads up about? No. They didn't tell him nothing that happened to us. The social worker didn't tell him nothing. They thought, oh, look at these cute, three Irish cute kids. And it was hell for them because we were fucking damaged goods at that point. We didn't have to, but we were robbing them. It was just, we started, my little brother was the angel. Me and E got in trouble. And it's funny because uh, 
Arthur McCanty Sr. was the referee for all the famous fights. Muhammad Ali, Frazier, all those fights, he's a famous referee. And his son, Arthur McCanty Jr., they lived in Garden City, went to school with my brother. So it was like they started seeing that there's crazy shit going on with us. And then they told everyone in the town that these were, we were their cousins. And then they're like, your fucking cousins are fucking crazy. What sort of stuff were you getting up to? Oh, just drugs already. In 75, I started getting like 13. 13. Yeah, smoking weed, stealing, drinking, fucking. I remember that time my mom tried to take us to this resort up in the Catskills, you know, for a week or whatever, three, four days, and we just fucking raided the barn where the liquor was and drank all this. I got alcohol poisoning. I fucking stole. I I beat this fucking, I beat somebody up. Like, we were just fucking at, getting out of control, and I had, you know, these anger issues from what was done to me. I was just like this very angry person. So the, this, this family, the McGowans, were like, yo, get these fucking kids out of here. And that's when we went to St. John's. And then they said to my little brother could stay, but these two, me and my older brother, got to go. And then he left, too, and went to another foster family in the five towns in Lawrence. And then we went to St. John's. And like I said, after, you know, New York was crazy at that point. It was we bounced around the different foster homes, but then it was like the spring of 76. And then we were there and fucking going up to the Deuce, 42nd Street, Times Square, fucking getting drugs. Dude, just St. John's was crazy. And, and I was down with the black kids at first. Like they would take me to their house, you know, to, to smoke weed and like fucking, you know, they would make us like fried bologna sandwiches with ketchup. That's what people ate in the hood and bug juice, like grape fucking tang or fucking cool, you know, whatever. A lot of processed stuff. Yeah, just crazy shit. It wasn't even about food. Nobody, you know, to me, I was like, I was starved my whole childhood. I didn't give a fuck what I was eating at that point. And then uh, after they jumped me, the same kids that was cool with me on the 4th of July, it was the bicentennial, seventeen seventy six, and there was a dance, and the fucking Irish kids threw molotovs over the fence and burned these kids, and then that night they fucking jumped me, and that's when these were your friends. Yeah, the black kids and Spanish kids, and actually the Spanish kid gave me the heads up. He was like, "Yo, they're gonna fucking jump you. You gotta get out of here." So like when the council is left at eleven o'clock, I tried to sneak out the back. It was like you used to shimmy down the fucking wall like Spider-Man to get out of the building at night, you know? It was crazy. It was fucking insane. And then, uh, yeah, they jumped me. And then my brother, that same kid went and got my brother and this dude, Keela, Bobby K, who was a fucking animal. He was 200 pounds, solid muscle, fucking hands the size of cinder blocks. And he was my brother's friend. He was in there because uh, his mother's boyfriend, he woke up his mother's boyfriend when he was like three. His mother's boyfriend threw him in the bathtub with lighter fluid and set him on fire. Wow. And he was just fucking in mental institutions. 
And then we got real tight and then my brother split and started doing heroin and then stealing. He was stealing meat. That was the big thing back then. You would go to the supermarket. The junkies would steal steaks and then resell them to get dope. So he split the home and then he got busted and he went upstate. He went to Spofford in the Bronx, which is, you don't want to go there. Put it that way. It was like Rikers Island for 21 and under, but even worse than Rikers. Because Rikers, everybody's in Rikers. They just want to get upstate. If you catch a case in Rikers, you're fucked. Because there's nothing in Rikers. So at least when you get upstate, you can work your program. They got weights. They got this. They got that. Rikers is just, you're just locked up. What do you mean by catch a case? If you if you do something bad in Rikers Island, if you fight, if you fuck somebody up, if you get caught with drugs, if you catch a case in Rikers, you're fucked. Yeah. Because you could spend up to two years in Rikers. But Spofford was the exact opposite because it was 21 and under back then and everybody had something to prove. So it was constant. And you're a white boy, you're a target. You know, so then... I was hanging out with Keela. I knew he, my brother got busted. I was fucked up over that. The first time I took acid with him, he tried to murder me. Keela pulled a fucking hunting knife, had a bad trip, and tried to murder me. So my time at St. John's was, came to an end shortly after that. And then I went on to the streets, and uh, I hooked up with these junkies. And then I was, you know, they're like, Look, you know, we go to the city, but we got warrants. The cops are after us. We go to Alphabet City. It was, it's crazy, like, the pieces, the way that everything fell in line. Because my first night that I left the home, I slept under the boardwalk with the winos, and there was a fucking blizzard. It was January of 77. How old were you then? Not even 15. Not even 15. So you were out. You were on your own on yeah, the I'm, streets. Yeah, yeah. So we're you, fucking like $20. You had to be super resourceful. Yeah. And... Not let anybody fuck with you. That was so. How did you? How did you go about that? Were you, were you thinking? Oh, I, I would just put a something. pipe against some across somebody's. Like I got a scar. I had my skull got fractured because uh, the first when 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 Keela tried to stab me, I went into this abandoned hotel and I was sleeping in bed, tripping. Still, we took microdot, double barrel, fucking purple microdot. I was tripping my balls off. And this girl climbs in the fucking bed with me, like just to sleep. I'm a kid. She's fucking 20 years old. And then the sun was coming up and I hear, where the fuck are you? And it was this maniac named Danny McGill. And that was her boyfriend came in with a pipe. And fucking, I was laying face down and he thought that I fucked her and smashed me in the back of the head with a pipe, put me in the hospital. And the cops wanted me to snitch, but I didn't snitch because they were like, they wanted him to go to prison. He had priors. And I was like, I don't know who hit me. Because to me, I was like, it's more important to get in good with the neighborhood people because I knew I wasn't going to be going back to the boys' home. And then they took me back to St. John's and I left right after I got out, right after the hospital, back to St. John's and I split. Did people know that? that had happened and that he hadn't snitched and that build a bit of Oh, yeah, the neighborhood the people were all thinking he was going to prison. Oh, he, he, he fucked this kid up. The kid, the kid from the home, I didn't snitch. And then they took me in as one of their own. I was this guy, um, Connie Crowley and Kevin Crowley. I was sleeping at their place and 
he was a boxer too, big fucking dude. And just everybody in the neighborhood just took me under their wing. They were like the kid from the home, you know, Irish kid. And which era is this in Manhattan? Rockaway Beach, Rockaway. Queens, you know, Queens. like what the Ramones sang yeah. about. But the thing was, I didn't have no place to... What happened to me was I went into Martin's Corner, which was this arcade greasy spoon, and I broke into these pinball machines with this junkie. And then that's how the whole heroin shit manifested out of that because I went back to his house and it was, they had a heroin business. So they were like, look, it's hot for us. The cops are after us. You're like 14 years old. You go to the city. We'll take the train with you. You get off second and second Elridge. You meet the connection. Five, six bundles of heroin and the dope in Manhattan. It was pure fucking, it was powerful shit. So they would cop and then take it back to Rockaway, step on it, cut it in half. And they had a heroin business. I was their drug mule. So you'd have to drop the money off, pick up the drugs, go back. No, I would I would I would go fucking meet the connection. Puerto Rican dude took me to Alphabet City and then cop, put it in my underwear, get back on the train with the other with this junkie Mikey Debris, and then go back out to Rockaway. And that's how I had a place to live. And were you making good money out of that? Enough to eat and stuff like that, but I had a roof over my head and weed and food and whatever, and I was fucking, you know got the fuck girls and like, you know, so it was like, I'm a kid. I was living every kid's fucking fantasy, not answering to anybody. But Mikey Debris was a scumbag because he fucking set, he set the other junkie up to get busted when the business built up. So we, we went to the city with like two or three grand and he set the other junkie up. So you were there when that happened? I wasn't there, but I know that it happened because we didn't go back to Rockaway. <laughs> so then we went on the streets and started selling beat drugs and at all the concerts at the garden. And I had met this girl and then she had a heroin problem. She was kicking. She was a punk rock chick. And then Mikey ended up getting a fucking hooked again and she OD'd and died. That was the first girl that I cared about. Mikey split, and then I went, I was hanging out with these other crazy motherfuckers, Junior Nuts and, and Dougie Holston, they fucking murdered people, they, en they ended up both getting killed themselves, but we were breaking into garages and stealing shit, and it just kept getting crazier and crazier and crazier, the level of insane people, you had Son of Sam fucking murdering people, the f you had fucking the blackout that year, just complete chaos. And then I was, uh, I started selling angel dust for the manufacturers that made it uh, in Forest Park. And that's what led to me. I had, I had racked up cases. I sold weed to an undercover. I broke into a supermarket pharmacy. It got caught through the roof. We were breaking into the skylight. So I had two cases. St. John's took me back both times and they were like, the next time you're going up, you're going to prison. That's it. And then in Forest Park. Can you explain to the listeners what Angel Dust is? And, Angel and Dust PCP. It? it was used as a sedative first for like surgery patients. The bikers in California, they used to, uh, it's embalming like ether and all these different chemicals. 
And then they would dip cigarettes in the liquid. And then it was called Sherms. You would smoke the cigarette or the joint dipped in this shit and hallucinate and become violent and unstoppable. Like, I wrote a pilot about the cop who single-handedly took down the whole angel dust trade and the stories that he had of guys walking through fucking bullets and, and just crazy shit, murdering their whole family. Like just crazy, crazy shit. And I was dealing for these guys at the dome in forest park. But this dude named disco Mike, disco Mike, everybody just called him disco. He was like, he looked like John Travolta steroids so this is leading up to all how this shit went so we sold angel dust to this dude irish tony from woodside's sister this guy was a maniac like new york back then people were known killers so we sold dust to this guy's sister and she like leaped out of like the second story window of a family's house and got fucked up. And he came into Forest Park for revenge in a van and was like, yo, who got dust? And I was like, yo, right here. And the side door opened and he was like, pop, 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 pop. Just started shooting with a 22 and I got shot in the leg. And then we ran and the dude disco and this other kid was another disco kid because the dome back then, like the Ramones would hang out there and play like fucking it was a rocker. It was all rockers. It wasn't no disco dudes there. The disco dudes used to deal dust at the carbines in, 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 in like the border of Queens, Brooklyn. That was their territory. But this dude walked around with a gun. He was like the muscle for this dude named Computer who used to make the dust. That was the dude's name. So like. I went back to his house and he was like, yo, we got to take that. I had a 22 sitting like, you know, I got grazed with it, but it was in my calf. And uh, when we went back to his house, he, he, he put, uh, he slipped me a Mickey. He put drugs in a drink and he tried to rape me. And I woke up and I just started bashing him and he just fucking threw me on the ground and I passed back out. And I woke up to horrific screaming and I walked toward the back of his apartment and he was raping the other kid. And I just picked up the baseball bat and started bashing him with it. And I, I robbed him, his, his house. I took all his dust and his money and I went back to the dome and I was just sitting there on the bench. And the place was hot after the shoot thing happened. There was the detectives, DTs everywhere. And I just went on the bench and I was fucking smoking dust and they just came up and like took me down. And then they put me in Kew Gardens, Central Book. How old were you now? I was still, I was 15. And it was like September. Yeah, so I went, so they was like, nope, send them to Spofford. But the cops wanted me to snitch. They were like, just tell us where the connection, who's making this shit. And I was like, I don't know. Like, and I knew because I would go there and pick up the big bags of dust and they put it in aluminum foil packets. It was Zambola, they called it. But this guy made the strongest angel dust and it was on spearmint leaves and they would turn black. Like he had this special 
mixture that he made that everybody came from all over the fucking tri-state area to buy the dust at the dome. And they wanted this guy because he was making the powerful shit. I didn't snitch, and they were, like, playing the good cop, bad cop. They were going to give me a drug program. Oh, we'll put you in Samaritan House for a year instead of going. So I just took the time, and then they put me in Spofford in the South Bronx and fighting every day, and then I went upstate, came out, caught another case. So how long were you in there for? Almost two years. And then I got out right back to the same shit. Lockup was crazy. What, who, what were some of the other guys like that were in lockup? Oh, insane. I was the only, well, yeah, you had 21 and under. So the first time that I came in there, I didn't know shit. The Irish cops were driving me to the fucking South Bronx. And they're like, they're like, look, I'm going to tell you something right now. And, and, I, and I'm just going to say word for word verbatim what, you know, what they told me. They said the first or spick that fucks with you in there you better fucking take him out because the last white kid that we brought up there, they ended up taking him out of there in a body bag. He got stabbed to death. So I don't know if that was true or they were just scaring the shit out of me so I would defend myself. So but, did you go in there and with you, have your wits about you? Like, Yeah, no, nah, I went in there and then in doc, this kid, this fucking black dude was like, "I'm, a, you're going to be my Maytag motherfucker. And I was like, I didn't even know what a Maytag was. And, they, and then I was like, nah, you're going to be my Maytag. So they all laughed. And then I was like, yo, what the fuck is a Maytag to the Spanish dude? He's like, you just told that big fucking black dude right there that he's going to have to clean your fucking shitty drawers and sneakers and fucking, I'm like. And then as soon as we got to the wing, in St. John's, it's bugged out. I was in 3B apartment like that was my wing and then in Spofford I was B3 intermediate and the first I was there maybe one day this dude walks up I'm sitting in the TV lounge he comes up behind me and pulls out his dick and touches it to the back of my head I turn around and I just fucking snap and I fucking I beat him with a chair and then I his friend I walked over to his friend and knocked him out like, I, I became a really good fighter on the street. And then uh, they put me in, like, they call it, like, you broke. You broke wild. So they put you in, like, the cells. The, like solitary or something. And then when I came back to the unit, they were, like, they had respect for me. I, I, you know, I didn't have to really throw down anymore. And so this, there was a riot in Spofford when I was there. And I got stabbed with a fork, like, by that same dude. And it, it was just crazy. It was, like, fucking, it was literally fucking insanity. And the thing was, everybody put on the tough guy face and the tough guy bravado and fucking, you know. And then when you got locked in your cell at night, you would just hear everybody, including myself, crying. Because we were just kids, you know, and didn't know what the fuck where we were going or nothing. What what kind of food were they serving up? Oh, just there? fucking. You know, like, Fink bread was the fucking institutional bread. And that's what you would get, powdered eggs, like jail food. You know, but for a motherfucker that didn't get to eat, three hots in a cot. And then I started working out. So I went in to lock up 135, 140 pounds soaking wet. 
by the time I got out, I was 165. I boxed in jail. I was like, when I went upstate, they had an athletic program. So I was like, fucking, I became like this fucking, you know. And, it, you know, it, it was a lot of racial shit because when I got locked up, Roots had just come out. Imagine that. They're like, oh, yeah, all the black kids is watching Roots and you're the only white kid in all of Spofford. And they're like, oh, yeah, Kunta Kinte, huh, motherfucker? So, like, yeah. it was until they saw that I was down with them and then they were, like, fucking cool about it. You know, I went through all of that time. And then, like, before they let you out, they start sending you home for visits because you have to go somewhere. And, and my mother was going to try to take us. And uh, I I didn't grow up with her or nothing. It was, it was like, you know, and then all of a sudden, and she's an emotional wreck. She's on antidepressants, all this shit. It didn't work out. I got home, and then I was just right back out on the streets. I, I, got, I, I, got, I got caught with drugs, selling drugs to an undercover. And then they were like, my mother happened to have been dating the Navy recruiter, and she knew him, and he's like, let me see what I could do. So they're like, look, you're going to take four years in the Navy or you're going back to jail for four years. And this was 1980. And I was like, give me the four years in the Navy. I ain't stupid. Went to boot camp with my brother. We went in on the buddy program, which is something they had back then. So we were supposed to go to the same boot camp and then, you know, to the same command, whatever. But the thing was, he scored really high on the entrance exam. My older brother's fucking genius level IQ. So he qualified for the nuclear program. And they were like, you know, I wasn't book smart. I was street smart. And they were like, okay, here's a list of jobs that you could do. Storekeeper, boats and mate, like chip paint, fucking all the worst shit you could ever imagine. And then my company commander was like, yo, you know, he was a CB and he served with the uh, Navy SEALs. They, it was UDT SEALs in Vietnam. And he was like, I was the company commander, petty, uh, physical training officer. So they made me work everybody out in the boot camp. I, I could do more push-ups. I was fast. I could do more. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So he made me the physical training petty officer for the whole boot camp. So then he was like, show me this film, be someone special about, and I'm like, it was all about the seals. And I was like, you know, what do I got to do? I want to do that. And he was like, well, here's the entry level exam that you have to take which was like, forget how many lengths of the pool and then you fucking get out, push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups. And then I did all that. Then it's like preconditioning unit you go to. And that's, I like fucked up my, uh, my knee. So that was that. And they sent me down to Norfolk. And that's when I started getting in trouble. On a command, the USS Arkansas, and it was being built in the shipyard. so. I had shore duty, you know, I was into punk rock, just going crazy in Norfolk, like going to these crazy bar, punk rock bars and shit, the Taj Mahal. And, and that's when I met the Bad Brains who had just started becoming Rastafarians in 1980, like April. And uh, the singer was like telling me about PMA, positive mental attitude and you know, like I went to Jamaica right before I met him and like, and the Rastas were telling me about Itao, which is like, 
It's pure plant-based food, no oil, no nothing. This guy was eating it because I was smuggling. It's a Jamaican food, is it? Some of it is like Aki and fucking and Kalaloo, like shit you can only get on the island and then seaweed, brown rice, beans. I was like, what the fuck is that? He's like, man, this ital is vital. If you eat this, you can live to 120 terras. <laughs> so I linked up with him because I was smuggling on the ship everywhere I went. I smuggled pills or I smuggled coke. I sm- from Jamaica. From Jamaica. So I smuggled fucking pounds of weed back from Jamaica. How did you get time to do that whilst you were working? Or did you get a certain amount of no, time? No, you get liberty in, in Montego Bay. The ship pulls in, you got like three days there. So, so you had these contacts lined up? Nah, I just, like, I just, I got off the ship and there was no hotels. It wasn't like what you see now. This shit was straight up like you know, none of the shit you see today in Jamaica, like in Montego. Undeveloped. Yeah, undeveloped. And then when you get off the ship, the funny shit was they showed you a video in the mess hall everywhere you would go. So they show you this video. They're like, if you're having sex with prostitutes, use a, a prophylactic. And under no circumstances should you talk to these guys. And it was... The fucking rosters. They showed a picture of this roster with like smoking weed out of a coconut with like fucking weed coming out of every goddamn orifice. And then I was like, that's the motherfucker I looked for. Because I didn't hang out with nobody in the Navy. I stayed by myself. So you'd get off, go and find these Got off, walked around Montego Bay. They come up to you. They're waiting there for the ship. They're like, all right. They know you got money. And dudes was telling me, yo, you could trade fucking bars of soap and radios and all kinds of shit for weed. And I was like, what? You know, so I met this fucking guy was in his early 20s and he took me up into the hills to the wood carvers. And then we bought the lamb's bread and they put it inside the fucking statues for me and sealed them up. And lamb's bread's very compressed. So. A small little fucking rock like that of lamb's bread is like fucking two ounces and shit. It's like very dense, very powerful. This was marijuana, right? Yeah, we yeah. lamb's bread, they called it. Yeah. But the thing was, this dude was eating this food and I'm like, what the fuck is that? And then I tried it and I was like, yo, that tastes disgusting. And then, you know, I got back to Norfolk and then I met the brains after that. So it was like everything was like happening. I was real, I was really searching for something. I was like, I, I had a, you know, I just knew the Navy wasn't going to be my, you know, my ticket, you know. And then I met the brains and, you know, it was like this cosmic fucking thing. I was selling LSD. I sold their manager acid. And I had this talk with the singer HR and I was like, wow, like planting seeds of shit. I never heard don't eat animals and fucking PMA, positive mental attitude. No matter what you go through, if you keep a positive mental attitude, you can you can get through anything. And I I told him like, you know, you know, I, I said I grew up without a family. And I got locked up and all this shit, whatever. He's like, we're going to run into each other again. Meanwhile, in the Navy, uh, I caught a drug case from smuggling. I sold cocaine to undercover cops in Norfolk, Virginia. 
So then I had a case and then I went in to the back to the ship and I beat this dude down on my ship bad. He kept fucking with me, this like redneck dude. And I beat him with a paint can, but I had a a mouth infection. So they had to medevac me off the ship. They were going to court martial me the whole shit. So I left by a fucking hospital medevac chopper in the middle of the Caribbean back to Puerto Rico. And I stayed in the hospital and this was before computers. So they forgot to say this guy's supposed to be a prisoner. So when I got out of the hospital, they sent me back to Norfolk after like a week. And then I was in Norfolk at Nimitz Hall, TPU, Transient Personnel Unit, waiting for my ship to come back, just doing crazy shit all over the place. But I knew, like, they're saying, Leavenworth, like, it's going to be fucked up. So then, like, the dude who was the duty watch officer kind of liked me, you know, because I was crazy. I would wear, like, fucking sex pistols, destroy shirts, fucking, like, I was the only punk rocker on the whole base. He's like, uh, hey, McGowan, your ship just pulled in. The master at arms called up over there and we're like, hold that motherfucker. We're coming to get him. And he tipped me off. I just grabbed whatever possessions I could get. And like I had probably a hundred bucks to my name. And I just got on the fucking bus out the gate and they. So that they were coming to get you. To Lock me up. Lock you up. Yeah. The civilian bus came down Hampton Boulevard through the base, turned around at the end of the base and went back out Hampton Boulevard. So I got on that bus and as I'm sitting there about to roll out the gate, stopped at the light, the two cops, the man shut on from my ship, Smitty and this other dude hated me. They were right there. And I'm sitting there like this and I'm like, I just shrunk down in the seat. But if, if they would have looked to the left, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. So it's just wild how. How long do you think they would have locked you up for? Who knows? I had a civilian drug case and they were trying to say fucking felony assault on another sailor. Who knows? So what happened next? So after that. So you- I went I went up to D.C. because I was hanging out with Henry Rollins and fucking. Did Ian. you have to lay low? To yeah, I was. I had a federal warrant. And a police warrant. So what did that mean in terms of day? That means day, I day. couldn't get arrested for nothing. I couldn't get stopped. I had to assume. So I I went back to D.C. because I was hanging out there. I stayed with Henry Rollins for like a little, like, I don't know. I think it might have been like a week or two. And then he's like, all right, it's time for you to move on. And I caught a ride with this band called The Undead from D.C. to New York. And I got out of the van and I and standing in the doorway at 171A where they lived was a, it was the studio was HR from the Bad Brains, and he was like Rastafari. He had fucking dreadlocks at that point. Like he took me under his wing and 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 showed me the you know showed me the ropes. Then took me on tour with them and it got me a job at the health food store and little by little. I started climbing out of that hell, went plant, like they took me on toys. Like you can't eat meat. That's Babylon food. You have to be idle, and you can't take drugs. You can't drink. And he's, so I went on tour with them 
And it just completely changed my life. And I, and I never went back to it. Were you initially a little bit like, were you thinking, what? I can't eat meat? Like, or were you just pretty much? Nah, because the thing was, like, when we lived in the studio, I was slowly weaning off of it anyway, because, like, this dude, Vinny Signorelli, he's the, he plays in the Unsane now. He's the drummer, but he was in this punk rock band called The Dots. Jimmy Quid, who was in The Dots, produced the first Bad Brain single, Pay to Come and Stay Close to Me. So they had a connection to Vinny. And every time we would go to the health food store, Vinny would make us falafels with hummus and just. But these, so these guys, they were avoiding animal products because they. This part Rastafari means Prince of Peace. So they weren't allowed to eat dairy, nothing. So they had that connection yeah. of cruelty already. Yeah, absolutely. And then the thing was they got me a job in the health food store, which was connected to Integral Yoga Institute. Swami Sachinananda, and then I started going there and doing yoga, and I met, I got into raw foods at that point in 81. I met Victoria Skolvinskis, who did Survival into the 21st Century. I just started reading books on philosophy, anything I could get my hands on, Gurdjieff, Ram Das, Krishnamurti. I started going, seeing all these people speak. This, this sort of going away from, from drinking, doing drugs and eating animal foods or eating cleaner. Is that what, is that the straight edge subculture? Straight edge didn't come around till later, but Ian Mackay started that down in DC. I've got the straight edge. That was minor threat. Okay. So that's the, I wasn't part of that because I was still like the rosters allowed you to smoke ganja. So I was still smoking ganja. You know, you would read the Bible and read all this. But I also started getting a deep philosophy and Vinny took me to the Hare Krishna temple. And then they were like, yo, you can't take any intoxication. So then I started adhering to that and reading Prabhupada's books and, and chanting. And I was like, how old were you this, this time? This was, uh, I was 19. Okay. Because you did I, a lot in a short period there. Yeah, man. And then I was like, and, and meanwhile, I got federal warrants. I had to assume another person's identity. So you, you were going out of fake IDs? Everything. Names. Everything. You know, and, and the thing was, I started going to the Hare Krishna temple and I was like, yo, I want to I wanna live this monk lifestyle. So I, I, I joined the movement for two years. I was a monk in Hawaii and New York. And then I started seeing shit was like, you know, like the one dude, he was the big guru in Australia, Bhavananda, Bhavananda on Broadway. And it turned out he was doing all this fucked up shit. And then I started finding out about just stealing money and fucking they murdered this dude and like just... So you lost a bit of faith in it. They turned... Prabhupada... Slept on the floor, had no possessions. He was the real deal when he came from India. These guys were the exact opposite. So they pulled the wool over my eyes for a little while. But then this older devotee, who was a Prabhupada man from the early days, the 60s, was like, everything they're doing is bullshit. They're not supposed to be doing this. They're not. So then uh, I split the temple. And it was so heavy, I couldn't even walk out the front door because I was the biggest money collector for them. I would go out there because I, I used my street smarts to raise thousands of dollars. I had a $3,000 a week quota. This is getting donations on the street, right? 
or selling books or no. This was bumper stickers at concerts, fucking whatever the so fuck. Hustling. Hustling. I did retarded wheelchair Santa at Christmas time in a motorized wheelchair in a Santa suit, going up and down the aisles of fucking supermarkets. And this was all part of the the Hare Krishna. Well, what happened was the Hare Krishnas that first year when everybody else, you know, Salvation Army would come after Thanksgiving in the Santa suit. The Hare Krishnas had to get the one up on them. So they had my ass out there at the end of October. So what happened, it was like November, uh, early November, late October. And I'm working the fucking, the strip malls in Long Island as a fucking Santa with an elf. And they're like, get the fuck out of here, Santa. People are going by. It's too fucking early. And the thing was, it was like, there was a heat wave. It was 80 degrees and I'm out there, 70, 80 degrees and I'm out there in a fucking necessity is the mother of invention, right? So I got the worst jock itch of my life. I couldn't even walk. And I was like, that's it. My, my, my marathon's over. And then the dude was like, wheels out this fucking wheelchair. He's like, no, your marathon is not over. You're going out as an invalid. And I was like, what? They had Raggedy Ann's going out. One point I was a bunny rabbit sponsoring a hopathon, like hopping from store to store. You know, sponsor the bunny to hop for a mile. It's $30. Like, and I just was coming up with all this shit. It was a motorized wheelchair. I was like, what if I went out as a Santa? And better yet, what if I went out as a handicapped I worked that shit like crazy and I would like. And that was bringing you more money. I was doing fucking, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine hundred dollars a day. Like working the joystick with the bent wrist, my head cocked. It's do me, you know, the whole shit. And I had a bucket. Were you wearing the robes? Like, you know, the heart. No, I was, we- I was wearing the robes, but I was in a Santa suit. You're in a Santa suit. And then the and the other people that you were working with, they were all wearing no, robes. No, nobody wore robes to do this. Not like everybody what you see wore civilian, civilian clothes and fucking yeah, okay. baseball caps and fucking nobody let you because the Hare Krishnas, everybody said it was a cult. Because really they were hearing about like that shit from the book Monkey on a Stick. There was these murders in West Virginia and like all this crazy shit was going on, but they just kept telling us, oh, yeah. But the thing was, I never kept one penny of all the money that I made. I turned it all in. Then when I found that out, I split. And it was like you couldn't walk out the front door. I took my clothes and threw them off the roof <laughs> into the street in a big and walked out like I was taking out a bag of garbage after the Sunday feast. And I went and split. And I went down. Previously, we started the Cro-Mags in 81. And then it fell apart. And then I had this band called Blood Clot. We were the Bad Brains Roadies. And then when I, I just left music. But I always knew music was the calling. So when I left the Krishna Temple, I moved into this like burnt out building. Just before we move to that, when you were with the Hare Krishnas, Hare Krishna is like a, is it a form of Hinduism? Yeah, but it's like what Prabhupada brought was the most pure version of that. Like, 
I don't want anybody to think that's what Prabhupada, if like Prabhupada knew that there was some hustles going on and he's like, this has to stop immediately. All you have to do is go out there with the robes and give out the books and the money will come because people want these books. And were you learning yourself at that yeah, age? You I were was, learning about the religion yeah. and what? Yeah, I was a hundred percent. I was a brahmachari monk. I studied martial arts in Hawaii with this one devotee. And then I studied in Brooklyn with this other devotee. So your mindset must've been changing a lot. Oh, I was in bed by eight o'clock and up by two every single morning meditating by like 2.15, like no joke. I was all about it. After the whole morning program, that's when you would go, they would send you out to fucking like, you know, at first I did start out in Hawaii. You know, I was just hanging around the temple and then I overheard that the Hawaiians were beating up the devotees and taking their money. And I was like, yo, let me go down there. I'll fucking stop that shit. And then, the first day I went down there, this big ass Hawaiian tried to punch this big money collector devotee and I beat the shit out of him. And they were like, what? And uh, I got arrested. But then I got off because the guy tried to fucking smack me and smack the other devotee and then went to hit me. I was like, yo, step off. And he's like, you know, fuck you, Howley boy. Howley is what they call and they would call us Howley Krishnas. <laughs> so then I just fucking let them have it. It was my street smarts that ended up getting the Hawaiians to not fuck with us because they were selling weed to the tourists. And then I showed them how to make beet acid because that was my gig. And I was like, look, you got your gig. We got ours. Don't fuck with us. We won't fuck with you. And then it was like a truce. I was down there fighting motherfuckers. These Marine, like, born-again Christians came down one time and fucking punched a devotee, and I challenged all, the, challenged all three of them to a fight. And I took them to the parking garage, and I was studying like crazy. So I just did a flying knee strike. First dude, boom, knocked out. Second dude, spinning back fist, boom, knocked out. And then I said to the next motherfucker, I was like, let's do it. And he ran. And then I went back up, I took my book bag, put it on, went back out to give out books, and here they come. I, I told the devotees, I go, they ain't going to be fucking with us no more. And then they came up the street. The devotees must have been thinking. They yeah. thought, I haven't they, seen anything they like They thought I was like, yeah, they thought they didn't know what the fuck to think. And then the dudes came back, their eyes were all fucked up, they had ragged. They're like, yo, we just want to shake your hand. I, I ain't never seen nobody fight like that. We ain't never going to mess with you guys again. And I was like, all right, bet. You know, like, I just, I was never a bully, but it was like, if you fucked with me or my people, that's when it would click. It, it, shit would just snap. And, you know, even in New York, I developed, you know, it was like a whole thing of like, I had these anger issues that I never dealt with because what was done to me as a kid. So like, if you fucked with me, then I would hurt you like beyond. Like, that's what my philosophy was. You're, get, you're getting everything you fucking deserve and more. And always had that kind of a street fighting sense. And I knew it was either going to get me put in jail 
for killing someone or getting killed. You know, I went on with the Crow Mags and we blew the fuck up. We were fucking touring with Motorhead. We were playing fucking arenas. And had you always had a passion for music and being yeah, involved because, in it yourself? Well, 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 you know, that was something I, I didn't mention was even as a kid, when we were going through all that shit and I'm five and six years old, my mother would put on Motown records and we would dance around with her. And no matter what the fuck was going on, I would forget all the problems and all the craziness. Even in the foster home, I found this AM transistor radio. With, with There used to be these single earpiece white ones. And I had this radio. I would, I would be under the blankets in my own world, listening to music. Music was always the thing that got me through everything, even on the streets. Get escape from having yeah, to think it was about just, that was That was my drug. Music was just like, you know, and I used to talk about with my brothers, I would get these custom, back then it was the, the custom vans and shit, magazines were the big shit in the 60s and 70s. So I would get the van magazines. I would steal them. And I'd be like, yo, look at that van. And I would talk about going and going on tour. Like, I didn't even know what the fuck that meant. I didn't really know I wanted to play music until later, but I just had this dream of being in these vans and traveling all over the place with my brothers. It was Lost like, all. it was a fantasy thing, like to escape, you know, what the fuck was being done to us, it, the music. And, and, and it was like, yo, let we could go to California and I would see these vans in California with the spray painted shit on the side, all the airbrushing and TVs in the van and just all kinds of crazy shit. And I would, I was so into it. So the Chromags blew up and you yeah, were, you were, yeah, what, you were touring yeah. all over. All well, over we there. started out just playing anywhere we could get gigs and, and we had a reputation of being like the band that put on the fucking craziest, wildest fucking shows. Like Bad Brains were there and that's who, they were like the godfathers of the whole shit and we were like their disciples. The Crow, It was Bad Brains and Crow Man. And you knew all the Bad Brain guys yeah. already from your time there. Yeah, they, we, we did gigs with them. and So were they pretty impressed by your rise to... You know, it was funny because like, HR was the first person to put a mic in my hand because I wanted to be a drummer. And he was like, you got too much energy to be behind a drum kit. And he put a mic in my hand and was like, write words. And I started writing words. And then he was like, hooked me up with this crazy guy, Bob. It was like, he got murdered. Actually, the first band before Cro-Mags, I was with this guy, Bob. Yeah, he got murdered. He was started fucking some biker chick and her boyfriend, ex-boyfriend murdered him or something. They never found him. So the first band I was in, the guitar player that I started a band with got murdered. And then and then hanging around 171, the Cro-Mag started. It was the Bad Brains manager was our drummer. Sky Harley was on bass. And then Dave Stein was the guitar player. And then Harley was just being an asshole to everybody, and then that's everybody quit. But then we put the band back together when I, he put the band together while I was in the temple in New York, and I would see him, he'd be like, yo, leave this Krishna thing, man. Come on, we're doing the band, this and that. Then finally I left, and they had this huge 
thing, a couple of shows with them, but you know, and then I came back and got this, got my job back singing. Started like bike messenger and getting in crazy shape and fucking paying for rehearsals. Like I just lived, eat, breathe fucking music and the passion I had to play and play and do shows and tour. It was everything. It was the food, the food that you were eating back then. Yeah. It was is it similar to what you're eating now. Uh, yeah. I, I was eating, I was eating fucking the Angelica kitchen, which I went there once before. Yeah. So they used to be on St. Mark's and Vinny was the manager. So every night at 10 o'clock, we would go there and get all the leftovers. So we would get all the greens and beans and whatever. the fuck. Years ago, before they closed, Leslie used to throw a Christmas party and all invite all the staff. So there was some punk rock kid and he's like, you know, seen me and he's like, Leslie, have you ever heard of the crow mags? And she's like, I fed the crow mags. Like, <laughs> whoa. Cause she would give us all the food, you know? So we started going on tour and blowing the fuck up. And were, were you, the other guys in the crow mags, were they also plant-based? Feet? Harley was. Yeah. Like start, you know, you, you stopped eating meat and then, uh, we did a demo and that became a record. And then, we got signed. It was like, you know, the fantasy, uh, not even if, you know, it's not a fantasy because a fantasy is you don't fucking work to get something. We put the work in and shit just started mad. Back then, when once you get signed, you, you no, know. We toured for three years before yeah. we ever fucking got a record deal. We toured from 84 to 87 everywhere, every band. GBH, everybody wanted to have us open up for them. And were you make you were making good money, I guess, for the shows at that stage? Uh, no, man. We slept on people's floors. We fucking made money for gas. We fucking and if you got food, people would cook for you, whatever the fuck. So you were you were building up for a record deal? Like is that what you Yeah, were but looking- we didn't even care about a record deal. We just fucking, you know, it, 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 that started coming. This guy put us on a a, a show and then think we were opening up for the bad brains and he was like tried to jerk us for the money at the end of the show and i was like yo you better fucking pay us dude he went he pushed me against the wall and i fucking grabbed him and slammed him off the wall i was like yo if you ever put your hands on me and 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 he liked it he was like oh shit because he was like this like fit dude older than me and then he wanted to work with us and we got signed to profile records which did run DMC and everybody. Motorhead. We got the Motorhead tour. But we wasn't making no money. I was still living in burnt out buildings. And then I started discovering that he was doing, the manager was like doing some stealing our money. Like I walked into the office and he had a merchandising contract from Winterland. And I think he got like $50,000 and forged our names on it. And I'm like, yo, what the fuck? He's like, how dare you come in my office? I'm like, yo, dude, he knew I was AWOL. He's like, don't forget, I know your whole past and all this shit. He's like, I'm going to get you out of the band. I was like, you're not getting me out of the band. I'm the singer. So then he started saying that shit to the other dudes in the band. Like, I'm holding the band back like because of my vocal. Like, all this bullshit. But they went for it. They started believing the bullshit. So Harley, who was my best friend, who I came up with, who I stood up 
against gang members for and all kinds of shit. He went to Europe and he stole all the money at the end of the tour. And that's when I was like, I could deal with the manager jerking me, but this is my friend robbed me and left me. And I had had an apartment at that point. I got, I was renting like a room from somebody. And when I came back, I couldn't pay the rent and I got evicted. I was homeless on Christmas of 87. And I was like, I, I was blown away that like, yo, how the fuck did this dude rob my money? A friend. A friend backstabbed me. So what happened? How did you, how did you manage he that? He came back and I, I quit the band and I smacked him in the fucking face. I was like. Was he apologetic? Yeah, but I wasn't having it. I was like, because I heard what he said. He was like, fuck those motherfuckers. I need the money. I'm going on vacation in Europe because his family lived in Denmark. And when I heard that, I just fucking lost it. I was like, and I quit the band. And then they did this record, which we were supposed to record right when we came off the thing. And I didn't do it. He begged me to fucking sing on the record. I was like, nah. So then that's when I didn't have music in my life. I hooked up. I started getting into freebasing. And I, I, like, I went to Miami with this one dude. His brother robbed these cocaine cowboy motherfuckers down there from Cuba, like for like a kilo. And we were freebasing. And that was the first time I ever smoked cocaine. And I was like, I was hooked. This dude, Crazy Dave, his brother, Eddie, was like, left with all the coke and was like, you can stay in my room. So then we were up for two days smoking, me and Crazy Dave. And I'm staying in Eddie's room. And I was like, Starting to come, you know, we had no more coke, nothing. Come down. And I'm coming down, laying in the dude's bed. Like he he just disappeared with all the coke. Nobody knew where he was. And he had a water bed in his room, and I'm laying in the water bed. The sun's it was like still dark, but you know, you start to hear, you know, and I'm like in in and out of consciousness. And I hear this car pull up outside the window where I was at and the fucking grass crunching and the dirt crunching. And then I hear the door open and then I hear the bolts on two AR-15s. They did a walk around the entire fucking house and emptied both clips into the house. Fucking cocaine cowboy. The Cubans that he robbed came and shot right into the room they knew it was his room. So they fucking fired into the... I'm laying in the bed. The fucking... I rolled off. The bed explodes. All the big mirrors exploding. Shit's exploding. I'm like on the floor. And they just walked the whole house. And uh, the cops came. They're like, where's the drugs? This was drug related. I said, we don't got no drugs. Wait, give me ID. I have to, you know. Went back to New York. And then I was hooked and I had met this model chick. So she started sending me fucking, you know, eight balls and quarter ounces from Cali. You know, I knew she was fucking cocaine dealers out there, whatever. I didn't give a fuck. She started mailing me coke and then like I was smoking it. And then she was like, I'm not sending you it. Are you freebasing? What are you doing? I was like, ah selling it to live and then that's when she cut me off that's when Dave was like yo there's this other shit called crack 
And it's the poor man's free base. And then we started doing that. And I sold all my possessions. And then I started robbing strong arm robberies against. This is like uh, late 80s. This was 88. So for 88 to 90, I was addicted. Pills to come down, alcohol, crack, free base. Still not eating animals. No. Same diet. I would fucking wake up after three days and go drink wheatgrass juice. I never broke my diet. That's the one thing I talk about. Like, all the poison I was putting in my system, I stayed. Were you you conscious to that? Were you like, I'm eating eating this food that's so nutritious? Yeah, I'm like, this is going to be fucking, this is purifying me. I would drink five ounces of wheatgrass. I was like, I got to detox. Yeah, I knew all, I knew the whole science, but. The thing was, I was addicted to this drug and I was out of control. And then Dave was like, crazy Dave's like, yo, there's these Colombians. You go on 18th and 8th Avenue and you could buy fucking 10 kilos out there. And you could right off the street. 10 kilos of 10 kilos of fucking of pure Colombian fucking fish scale. They would that was a big cocaine spot. So he got, I I had that girl's car. She was in Cali. She had parents here too. The mother and father separated. So our father bought her this brand new fucking like $25,000 Cabriolet fucking Volkswagen. And I was driving it, no license, fuck wild. So we got the Colombian to get in the car with like four ounces. And I had a Kyoga, which is a collapsible steel baton. So Dave was in the backseat and the trigger word was, this is some good fucking coke. And then he was supposed to smash the dude in the head with the Kyoga and throw him out of the car. So the guy gets in the fucking car and as he's getting in, his jacket's open. He's got a fucking 45 holster. And then... Crazy Dave, who acted like he was a nut job, was like shook. So he knew something was up. He's like gun, and I was like, "Yeah, I seen it." But I was like, "That motherfucker got in this car. He's not getting out with the coke. That coke is in this car. It's staying in this car." So funny shit was. I didn't know that yet. I didn't know that Dave was gonna bitch up. So we drive, and the dude don't speak no English. So Dave's talking to him in Spanish. Blah, 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 blah. He gives me the fucking Coke. I pull over and I took the four ounces and I put it in the side door. And, and I was like, two ounces down my pants, two ounces. And I go, yo, that's some good fucking Coke. Nothing happens. I go, yeah, that's some good Coke. And I look back and Dave's like, like he's going to shit his pants. So then, I reached back and I'm like, took the Kyoga and I'm standing there like this with it in between my legs and I'm parked. And the guy goes, and I'm like, I looked at him and I go, get the fuck out of my car. I'm going to kill you. And he laughed. And I fucking just took that Kyoga and it was collapsed. And I just bashed him in the fucking face with it. And this shit just leaked all over the car. And he's pulling out the gun. I hit the gas pedal. Boom, we're flying 50 fucking miles an hour down side streets. 
sideswiping cars. And I'm like, Dave, open the fucking door. He's paralyzed in the back seat. He's like, holy shit, holy shit. Like blood everywhere. And I got one hand on the steering wheel and my other hand is holding his hand from getting the gun. And he's punching me and we're fucking... Finally, Dave opened the door. I put my foot on the left gas pedal. Boom. Kicked that motherfucker out. We went and freebased all of that shit for like three days. Back to the crack. Robbing drug dealers. They put a KOS on me. Like two or three of them. Kill on sight. They said, when we see that surfer looking motherfucker with all the tattoos, we're going to fucking kill him. So Dave was like, wouldn't even. And then I just said to the girl, I was like, you got to get me out of here. Send me a plane ticket. I'm going to get killed. And she sent me a ticket and I flew out to L.A. And she lived next door to the posts. Very wealthy. Santa Monica. Pacific Coast Highway Mansion. She picks me up in a convertible Mercedes. Like a five foot ten blonde model. Like just drop dead. I'm like, holy shit go to her house and I'm like, I'm not doing, she, she's like, you look like shit. And I was like, yeah, I was fucking on crack. I, I just want to detox. We get to her house. It's a fucking playboy model shoot going on in the pool. Like all of this shit. Her parents were out of town. I tried to like get a job and do roofing and different, different to 18th and 8th. Yeah. And and she's like, well, you can't stay. We can't, you can't stay here. We got to get an apartment. And then we went to this Hollywood party and I did one bump. And that's when the shit just me and her went on a rampage. I wrote about it in my book. I said we was the crackhead Bonnie and Clyde, except she snorted it and I fucking smoked. This is in the PMI. No, this is in my memoir, The Evolution of a Cro-Magnon, but it just got crazy. Like her fair parent, parents had the feds after us, like all kinds of shit. Writing bad checks, fucking credit card fraud, sold a car, like all this crazy shit happened. They reported that I kidnapped her and I didn't even notice because we tried to sell the car to her friend in Palm Springs. But this is the crazy shit. It's like I always knew somebody was looking out for me. Like God, Krishna, whatever you want to call it. Because I'm driving through the fucking desert with her car doing 90 on the way to Palm Springs. And I got pulled over by a cop. And I was like, that's it. I got no license. No, I, you know, I was like, I'm going to, our fucking shit's over right here. still wanted as well. From Yeah, I was still wanted. But here's the whole thing. The cop comes and he's like, license and registration. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking like, you know, I'm fucked up. I'm like, should I fucking yoke this dude up and fucking attack him? I I was just, he's like, license and registration. I'm not going to ask you again. Put your hands where I could see them. Because he could see shit was, and he had his hands on the open window. And I saw... A fucking boatswain mate tattoo with DD2, whatever the fuck, his whole number of the destroyer. And he was a shellback, which meant he crossed the equator. So I go, I go, what year did you cross the uh, the equator, boats? And he's like, you a Navy man? And we just started talking all this Navy shit. 
I was like, yeah, I was a shellback. I've crossed the equator. We beat those polywogs. Like just all this Navy terminology. He's like, oh, hell, I can't give no Navy man a fucking ticket. I say, yeah, I'm on leave. Fucking lets me go. He's like, just keep it under 70 because the next guy's not going to fucking be so nice. The guy up the highway, the highway patrol. So we get to Palm Springs and her friend runs the dealership. And he's like, yeah, yeah, let me just run the VIN number, vehicle identification number. Dude goes with the fucking title, runs the VIN number, comes back looking like he saw a ghost. He's like, you two need to get the fuck out of here. Because when I ran that shit, an alert went off to the police. They're on the way. And he goes, that's when I found out they said, you have a warrant, federal warrant for kidnapping. They said I kidnapped her and then we wrote bad checks and all this shit. So I didn't even know that. And when I got pulled over by the cops, had he run that fucking VIN number, again, I wouldn't be sitting here telling you this shit. Christ. So then we drove back to L.A. And, I mean, the Red Hot Chili Peppers girl, uh, merch girl, let us stay with her. And she sold crystal meth. We robbed her. Like, everybody was after me in L.A. It was crazy. And then uh, she's like, I know this dealer. He'll buy the car. So we went there. He gave us two ounces, $1,000, and two plane tickets back to New York. So back then, you didn't, you know, it was like, you didn't even have to fucking, I had to just show any ID to get on the plane. So we put one ounce in the overhead, carried it onto the oh, plane. Were they scanning all the bags? No, they. this was fucking 88. They didn't scan bags. I checked an ounce in under the plane and I, and I kept the ounce in the overhead because I was like, we're going to sell this when we get home. We're getting clean. It was always that shit. When we get home, that's it. This is it. Last time. You know, so then... I'm sitting with her and I'm like, you didn't tell no, after like two hours, I'm like, you didn't tell anybody that we're on this flight. She's like, no, not really. I was like, yo. And I could tell she wanted to get away from me because she knew that I was insane and I was fucking going to kill somebody or some bad shit was coming. And I think she told her friend what flight we were on because she wanted to get away from me. And a girl or a guy? She told her friend, who was the heiress to the post serial, <laughs> like, we were on the flight. And I was like, the fucking cops are going to be waiting for us in JFK. Now, you'd think I'd be like, this is it, baby, you know, like, you know, fucking thinking it was going to be this romantic moment. And the first thing I said was, we got to sniff all the coke in the overhead. And I started doing huge fucking lines and... What, you went, just went to the bathroom? I would just go to the bathroom and fucking... I had coke all over my face. I was like quoting. People were eating meat. I'm like, you're going to the fucking hellish planets for eating meat. If this plane crashes and fucking... I'm like reading the Bhagavatam, standing up, quoting like Bhagavad Gita, like out of my fucking mind. And the stewardesses were like, sir... You have to sit down. You're scaring all the passengers. I was like, fuck them. They're fucking animals. Look at what they're eating. Look at what they're eating. Like flipping. And the crazy shit was, I was like, when this plane lands, you're going to walk off in front of me. And I'm going to fucking 
let you go into that terminal first. And then I'm going to try, I have to try to get away because you're going to go to a drug rehab. They're putting me in prison. So I put on a baseball cap and shades and then sure enough, the plane lands, you know, the connecting little tunnel shit they have. As soon as she got into the motherfucking terminal, it was pissing rain. All these, it was like something out of a movie. All these dudes in wet trench coats and walkie-talkies just swarmed on her. We got her. We got her. Where is he? Where is he? And I merged in with this family with their kids and went down the escalator. And never in a million years did they think that I would stop to get my luggage that I checked in. But I did because there was an ounce under the fucking plane. And I wasn't letting that shit. That's how much of a drug addict I was. But it turns out that had I ran out and tried to get a cab, they would have caught me. When I got my bag, I had this kid grab my luggage. And then I went outside. It was like they were going back in. Like they didn't know where I was. And I got in the cab and got away. And we had made plans. Listen, if you get caught, call me at the Alcatraz bar. That was the Coke bar where everybody hung out. So I had like an ounce and a half. I snorted a half ounce of cocaine on the plane and I had the money and I'm in the Alcatraz and the phone rings. Bartender Betsy was like, yo, it's for you. And I, and I get the phone. I was like, Kate. And he's like, it's not Kate. This is her father. And I'm like, he's like, you're good, John. McGowan, we know all about you. Here's the deal. You stay away from our daughter and you never contact her again and all of this goes away. If you try to contact her at all, you're going to prison. We know you're AWOL. I'm going to tell you, this family, the father was a big Hollywood producer. He did Ronald Reagan's inaugural ceremony in 84. That's who these people, how fucking, he was a big time Hollywood producer, the stepfather, and then the father was the big businessman in New York, multi-fucking-millionaire. And he's like, don't ever contact us. And I'm like, but I love her, man. And click. Nobody, everybody in New York, nobody would hang out with me because all these drug dealers were fucking looking to kill me. I robbed a lot of people. When I talk about in the book how you could go below rock bottom, that's where I was. So I went into this crack house and I was freebasing and these dudes slammed me in the head with a fucking pipe or some shit and robbed me and took everything I had. And I fucking went into Tompkins Square Park and it was pissing rain and I had nothing. And I was like, just broke down. I'm like, fucking heads gushing. The next day I went to the Hare Krishna temple for the Sunday feast. And I was like, if you don't let me stay here, I'm going to be dead. And they had heard all the crazy shit. So they let me stay. And then I got a job as a bike messenger and slowly climbed out of that shit. Training, took up martial arts again. And it was rough because like, I didn't go to no drug rehab. I didn't do none of that shit. I had to, I was right where the crack was. I would walk out my door and they would be fucking right there. And 
It took a lot of mental strength to kick crack. And I had to pay back people that I did wrong. And, uh, you know, I haven't touched drugs since. That was 1990. 1990. So what did the next years look like for you, sort of? Well, I got back to the Cro-Mags in 91. We went to Europe. Was Harley still part of it? Yeah, Harley fucking robbed. He robbed all the tour money. He had it pre-worked out so that the tour agent would say at the end of the... Now, mind you, the only reason we got the tour is because I came back to the band. So we were fucking playing to 5,000 people. Temple Drome in Berlin. Fucking huge club. Huge gigs. All over. Sold out every night. pro are back together. The end of the tour, we did 38 shows. He's spending money like crazy. He says at the end of the tour, the fucking tour lost money. And I found out it was all prearranged. He... He took all the money. So he robbed you a second time. Second time. Then I had quit my bike messenger business that I started. We said we signed a record deal in Europe before he robbed me. So we were going to do a record. So I, I had nothing. I didn't find out when I saw his girlfriend later and she was a junkie and she told me, yeah, it was all worked out. He sent me back home with all this money. I would estimate he made about $40,000 on the tour and I came back with $700. And then the record deal, he stole $18,000 out of the band's bank account. He had his, he just kept doing grimy shit. And then he started doing heroin. And then he had me signed as an individual artist. I called up Century Media to be like, hey, you know, I need a release. I got this other band. They're like, well, you have to continue as Cro-Mags and give us a tour in Europe and a tour in the States and this and that. So I was honoring my contract and Harley got pissed off. And that's when he ratted on me to the government and told them where I was. And the fucking cops and the feds came and knocked my door down. I got away and uh, went to DC and turned myself in. And that was 95. Because by that stage, I guess they, they would have. Well, we hired a lawyer. They, the scene did a benefit for me and, and, what they said was that I was a conscientious objector. I didn't go AWOL during wartime. I should have never been let in the Navy to begin with. It was a fraudulent enlistment, pretty much. They lied about my past with drugs and arrests. And, and that I lived as a monk. I became a Hare Krishna. So that was my, they gave me an, they gave me an OTH, other than honorable, which was upgraded to a general discharge. So I got, I got benefits and everything if I wanted them. So, yes, yeah, uh, you know, he ratted me out. He snitched on me. And that's the code of the Cro-Mags is, you know, street justice, survival of the streets, these songs. And then you go and fucking snitch on somebody. But, you know, I I just I even tried to give him the benefit of the doubt in 2000 and, and, and work shit out again. And he just pulled more bullshit. And then he quit the band and we just went on. So now. You know, and he just bullshits and lies. He says he came to with his bass to play songs. We invited him. He showed up with a fucking knife at Webster Hall and tried to sneak in and get on the stage and have a big standoff against me, which I would have just put a pipe across his fucking mouth. I knew he was there. So he lied and said we invited him and then we jumped him. And, uh, you know, it's just all this bullshit. I don't get involved with it. Uh, you know, the dudes in my band... And primarily AJ, who's the guitar player. He's been in the band since 92. 
was like, dude, let it go. Like a lot of the shit that I put into the PMA effect is a lot of shit I've had to deal with and, and make bones with. And a lot of shit I had to put into practice. And the band's still together now, right? Yeah, we're together, just not with him. So now he recently tried to sue us for the name because we took since 2000, we've been doing sold out shows and brought, you know, when he took over the band for a little while and was like coming out with a flute player, rapping himself in saran rap, couldn't play. He's not the singer of the band. And he, you know, it was just, it was just all bullshit. So I, you know, he writes bullshit on the internet. He's like, it's just a whole bunch of negative shit. And my whole thing is like, yo, stay with the positivity because that's going to win out every fucking time. Negativity cannot sustain itself. The only thing and the truth in life always comes out. And the only real thing that sustains itself is positivity, PMA. That's why I'm like the PMA effect. And I got into training. I started competing in Ironman. And How did you get into the training? I wanted to push myself and and I started really getting into like training heavily, uh, swimming a lot, doing all this stuff. What year was that? Like 2010. So I started working with this trainer, Aaron Javanovsky. I was running marathon. I did the Marine Corps marathon. I kept being like, yo, this is a test. And I was like, you have to fill your life with positivity. Otherwise, the negativity is going to grab hold of you, you know? And how do you battle those demons that I had? Like, I never told anybody the shit that happened to me as a kid until I wrote the memoir, Evolution of a Cro-Magnon. And then I put it all in there. But I would get to the molestation part and just lose my shit and break down crying for like an hour and, and, and skip over it and not put it in. And then I was started taking writing classes from Robert McKee, who did the book story. And he's like, it's not what happens to somebody. It's what they do as a result of it. And that's when I was like, I have to put it in there. And he wrote in my book story because he signed my book. He, he wrote, John, always write the truth. It's not what happens to someone. It's what they do as a result of it. That's the power of story. Right. That's a great quote. It, it changed my life. It, 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 it was like, this was the deep, dark fucking shit. You know, you're supposed to be the streetwise tough guy. And my older brother still not come to terms with, you know, he denied when my mother said, my mother read the memoir. She was like, I didn't know that they were doing that shit to you. You never mentioned that. He's like, that didn't happen. Because my brother's like this big, tough fucking Irish dude. And then... I said, Ma, I swear on my fucking life that shit happened. And she asked my younger brother and he broke down crying and was like, yeah, it happened. And then she's like, both your brothers said that it happened. He's like, I don't want to talk about it. So he won't face that. And I had to. I had to confront my demons every day. I'm still doing it. You know, but that book. When that book came out, it just I mean, everybody from Woody Harrelson to fucking John Stewart, everybody, all musicians, every bugged out, like, cause it's like they can't believe that that shit was true. All the Krishna stuff, the foster home shit, the streets. Actually, when they met me to do a piece on the book, The Village Voice, they thought that I made the shit up. The guy tried to say that, come on, man, no fucking way. I was like, bro, I did worse shit than what's in that book. And then they, I was like, I'll give you fucking my 
you can ask anybody you want. And he took my mom's number and whatever, few other numbers. And then he got, gave me the cover of the Village Voice. Like, shit started being like, you know. And, you know, but but then, you know, 2010, I was working with this trainer from Recover. I would go to Crunch Gym, and there was on the second floor a boxing ring. And Frank Grillo, who's like a big star now, was boxing there. All the Five Points Muay Thai guys and boxers, Terry Sutherland. It was like a big fighting so I just started like, you know, working the bags. And, and then this trainer was like, started working with me for my injuries. Aaron Dragozowski, who's still my trainer to this day. And I was working with him and I started being able to, you know, lift more, run more, swim more, feeling fucking, you know, just around a whole food plant based. So you've never done I mean. the real junk food vegan thing? Yeah, I did that. You know, when you go out on tour and you fucking, you, I have my share of fucking wheat gluten at Chinese <laughs> places, trust me. Anyway, so you're back training, you're feeling good. Yeah. You know, I start, I was always in the gym. I was, I used to go to Gladiator's Gym on 6th Street, which was, I was the only white dude in there. It's an all Puerto Rican fucking black gym. I wrote about it in my book. It was fucking, you couldn't make the shit up the way these motherfuckers, just the greatest people on earth. And that's why when you get these fake fucking paper tiger, tough guy wannabe motherfuckers, they think, oh, because I go and take jujitsu or I do some fucking Muay Thai classes and they get these attitudes like they're lethal weapons. These guys are fucking killers. Like, and they're the most humble fucking people on the face of the earth and the nicest people. And you could leave your whole bag there with all your money sticking out of it. They wouldn't touch a fucking dollar. And then when I got with Aaron, this opportunity came to this other. I kept hearing about this guy, Orion, Orion Mims, Orion Mims, six foot four African-American dude. He boxed he, and he was a 10 hour Iron Man. I was like, I got to meet this motherfucker. And then I was in Caravan of Dreams. And he was with this big bodybuilder dude. And I seen him. And then I seen him in Sid's Bikes, who still sponsors me. And I was like, this guy Larry worked there. He was like a sky rude boy kind of dude. He's like, yo, you got to meet Orion. And then I met him. And, and it was like, bro, we were like two peas in a fucking pod. And I started training under him. And he's like, yo, I could get us into New York City Iron Man. 2012 for the brain aneurysm foundation. We, we raised like five grand and we can race. And I met the woman, her daughter was training for uh, the New York city triathlon and had a brain aneurysm and died. And the mother was just the most lovely person. So I raised like 7,000. What's this? 2010, 2012, 2012. So that was in August. And what's an, an, an Ironman? What's the... It's 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile bike, and then a 26.2-mile marathon. So I'm wearing my Cans hat because I did Cans. Oh, you uh, did Cans. Yeah, I did Cans. Yeah. But yeah, and it was like the, the crazy thing about that Ironman was our drummer had booked a big festival for us to play the night before, the Ironman. And I'm like, yo. But I, we were headlining to like 3,000 people and, and getting paid. I was like, it was, this is hardcore in Philly. So I went down, did the show. My brother drove me back. 
I had a, first of all, I had a stress fracture in my foot from pounding. I used to run in Newtons. It didn't provide enough whatever the fuck to run on the concrete. So now I run in Hoka's and I had a stress fracture. I drove, I did the show. And if you've seen a Cro-Mag show, it's just pure energy. 500 motherfuckers jumping on the stage. I'm jumping and diving off the stage. Motherfuckers is punching you in the face. It's just like, it's just total chaos. Control chaos. Did the rest of the band think you were crazy going the next day to doing an online? Yeah, they were like, <laughs> So my brother drove me back. I went from the stage to his car. I made it back just in time, took a shower, and went to the swim start, the ferry to get on the swim start with no sleep. And I did the Ironman. It took me 13 hours, and it was 95 degrees humidity in August. And I banged that motherfucker out with a broken bone in my foot and everything. And I just signed up for another one and just kept going and kept going and kept going. Over over the years, have you have you sort of adjusted your nutrition based on? Oh yeah, you have to. Like my more. girl Erica is a nutritionist, plant based okay. nutritionist through the Cornell. Yeah, and uh, and she's a trainer and she does martial arts and so she helped me out a lot. But yeah, you have to know what to eat to do these races. What do you normally eat, like leading into a race or? Well, you want to like, you know, really got to watch what the fuck, like I'll eat like a fucking madman leading up to the race, but it's all, you know, very clean plant-based stuff. The less processed stuff you can eat, the better you're going to A lot of beans and rice and veggies. Yeah, beans, rice, veggies and burritos and whatever the fuck, just, you know. You got a sandwich down on organic grills menu, right? Yeah, you saw that? The Triple J, the John Just. I was here. Yeah, yeah. my dad in there and he he actually... You had your, your yeah, yeah. Well, Pete Savoni, I worked with this chef guy. He's been on the podcast. Yeah, Pete's my boy. And he, I was like, yo, they don't have the consistency right. It's chunky. It needs to be more shredded and like pulled pork kind of consistency. And then the, the flavoring's off. So he worked on it. What is it, Jackfruit? Yeah. Jackfruit. Yeah. God, it's good. Yeah. He's doing some cool stuff now. He's a bad fish. motherfucker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a, no, Save no the oceans, there. man. You yeah. know, that's... uh. What are those brothers' names? I'm just fucking... Chad and Derek. Sarno. Yeah, Sarno. Yeah. Chad Sarno. Yeah, Derek's actually been on the podcast too. Yeah, they're fucking... They're, they're just fucking salt of the earth. Like, everyone that's fighting now to save this planet... Like, I did cans and they're like, yo, the Great Barrier Reef's getting destroyed. It's crazy. And, you know, they can't... And it's... And there's people saying climate change is not real. You know, they're, they're drinking the fucking Kool-Aid of these motherfuckers that are just have... You know, they're making profit off of destroying the planet and it needs to stop. And animal agriculture is the number one motherfucking destroyer of this planet. Just the meat, the beef industry alone uses more fucking fossil fuel than all the world's transportation combined. Think about that. That's crazy. Think about that. The beef industry. You know, I really started educating myself more and more and, and, and on the whole science of it. I put out Meters for Pussies. Oh, that so book. Run through Meters for Pussies. Well, it's just a how-to guide. You know, like like I was training at that gym and then this dude was like, you know, my boy had a fight and I was trying to fucking tell him like, listen, you got to consume alkaline-based foods and up your fucking, you know, greens and and. You know, I was, he's like, what? You're vegan? I was like, yeah, well, you know, I just don't so call my... tiptoeing around it. <laughs> no, but I was telling this fighter, dude, and, and, and then this fucking Mama Luke 
fucking like weightlifter dude was like, vegans, oh yeah, they all fucking look like they're about to fall over and fucking vegans are fucking puss, look like pussies and fucking. Oh, so that's where the name came from for the book. I say, I looked at him and I go, what motherfucker? I said, I mean, me since 81. You want to get in the ring and go a few rounds? He's like, what? You don't eat meat? And uh, and I was like, nah, man, or dairy or any of that shit. And I started educating that dude. But the thing was, I was going to call the book something else. The book was going to be called The Go Green Road to Healthness, to Health, Fitness, and Longevity. And thankfully, my business partner was like, dude, who the fuck do you think you are, Dr. Oz? Like, nobody's going to read that fucking book by John Bloodclot, the singer of the Crow Mags from the streets. And then a couple of days later, that shit happened. I go, yeah, this motherfucker's telling me, you know, people that don't eat meat are pussies. And I was like, motherfucker, you're the pussy. You're destroying. I said, meat is for fucking pussies. Fuck you. You're destroying the fucking planet and everything else. He's like, that's it. Meat is for pussies. I'm like, nah, what? You copped a bit of a bit of flack over the name, right? Yo. And you know by who more than anybody? The goddamn vegan feminists and fucking I was like, I don't even give a fuck. You sit behind your computer. Listen, my buddy Ian Norrington, if he listens to this podcast, he's a huge bodyguard dude. He was he we we did um what's that big festival we did in Australia? I forget what the fuck that shit was called. We the big it went around to every different city. This is a big music festival, right? Yeah, it was huge. System of a Down. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Everybody was yeah. on this shit. Metallic. And, and Ian was our road manager for us, Biohazard and Hatebreed. And then he was like, I was training for that Iron Man. Uh, the Soundwave. Soundwave sound Revolution. Wave. Okay. And then he's like, yo, mate, how the fuck are you getting up and doing all this shit and running and swimming and and you, but like, and you don't eat fucking meat. And I had a copy of Meat is for Pussies and I gave it to him. And basically, I've converted a lot of fucking people to the plant-based lifestyle, you know. Like when you put the education in front of somebody and the knowledge that you can't stay stuck on stupid. But these fucking commando, keyboard commando fucking warriors that sit there you know, they did the same shit to Rory Freeman who wrote Skinny Bitch because she said, Skinny Bitch, they fucking attacked her. Meanwhile, the books helped millions of women save their lives by going plant-based. It don't matter to them because they have an agenda. They're snowflakes. That's why all these fucking... I don't get involved in no politics, but these politically collect, correct liberal fucking motherfuckers that are like, you're all good as long as you're towing the line to what their agenda is. And the minute you don't, then they just fucking try to destroy you. I think it's great. It's a book I've recommended to heaps. Yeah. My brother gave it to me. But it's, yeah. the great thing is that, and, and I like the title that you went with, is that we don't want just doctors advocating for a plant-based yeah. diet because not everyone res resonates with a doctor, you know? Well, that's the main thing people said, but, I, you know, I mean, dudes who fucking hell's angels and fucking convicts and truck drivers and bikers and fucking and fucking MMA. They're like, they're like, dude, the way that you put it, your vernacular, man, you made it accessible. I don't want to hear no fucking sprout munching fucking hippie motherfucker in Birkenstocks tell me to fucking, you know, get alkaline based foods, man. It's like good for your aura. It's like, I don't come at it like that because it's not where I come from. I come from the fucking streets. 
And it's just, when I asked my teachers, how do I repay you? I was told, pay it forward, put the education out there, put the knowledge out there and help people. That's way, that's the way you pay back the gifts. And, and I do the, I mention, I talk about it in the PMA effect. Let's move on to the PMA. So this is your latest book that's just come out. That just came out like last week. We did a book party. We had over 400 people. Rich Roll flew in. Vladimir told me today. He showed me the hall. He said uh, there was people, people, had, people couldn't get in. They turned away 100 people. The world is spun into such negative bullshit. And I was listening to Bob Marley right before. I had a long training day today, like six hours. So I went and did my stretching and trigger point and, and foam rolling and whatever the fuck. And I was listening to Bob Marley. Those lyrics resonated with me so much. And really realizing like, you know, when you when you roll with the positivity and the higher consciousness, that's the ticket out of all of this shit that everybody's going through, depression and all of this stuff that's going on now. You know, if I can get out of where I came from and I could turn the corner on my shit and it's not, you could look at me now and be like, oh man, but you don't understand the battles that had to take place in my mind over the last decades to get, and I'm still a work in progress. And I say that too, you know. Tell me about this book. So who is this book perfect for and what, when they read it? What are they likely to get out of it? That book, PMA stands for Positive Mental Attitude. So HR copped it from Napoleon Hill, who put out all these books on uh, self-improvement. And they wrote about it in this song, The Bad Brains Had, called Attitude. Don't care what they may say, we got that attitude. Don't care what people may do, yeah, we got that attitude. Yeah, we got that PMA. So it intrigued me. What he said, as long as we have, we stay positive. And then my writing teacher saying, it's not what happens. It's what we do as a result. So anybody can benefit from that book because everything is mindset. The mindset that we carry into any particular endeavor. It's not the endeavor itself. And I've, my friend's an active duty Navy SEAL. He was in active valor. Like, you know, he's... I've interviewed a lot of very A-fucking-type personalities, both men and women, and picked their brains and their quotes. And how did they get, what was the qualities that they had to achieve the fucking amazing things that they've done? And it all came down to one thing, mindset. And it's for anybody. If you're trying to be a better father, if you're trying to be a better student, if you're trying to be a better businessman, a better athlete, a better human being, kind. You know, where, where, where is it not cool to be kind, to be a douche, to be an asshole to people is cool now? It's like I just did this documentary, 30 to Life, with Kip Anderson, who did fucking What the Health and Cowspiracy, and Paul DeGelder, who is beyond bad motherfucker. He's on a new TV show. Now. Yeah, I know. It's fucking great. Crazy. I love it. And he's good. I was watching the scenes where he was like, but we worked with these convicts who all did over 20 years. Oh, I, I saw that. I saw it. Yeah. And like, you know, I, I initially came up with the concept 30 to life because bad brains were like, yo, 30 days and, 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 
the the most prison. It, it's a double entendre in in a lot of ways too, because like thirty to life, you can get thirty to life, but above that, you get double life, and then you're gonna die in prison pretty much in the states. And I've been seeing what they've been doing. I saw the documentary Thirteenth, how slavery, the new slavery, is the prison system, and they violate you and put lock you up for all the. And I read this article in this magazine, Satya, S-A-T-Y-A, which means the mode of goodness. And it was an all plant-based magazine about yoga, meditation. And this dude worked with these prisoners and taught him meditation and stuff like that. And this one guy, he was never getting out of prison. And he was like, if I had the access to this knowledge on the street, I wouldn't be where I'm at. And I was like, where I came from, and I speak at prisons. I've been speaking at prisons and gang high schools all over New York, the States. Uh, I speak at drug rehabs in Canada. Wherever I go, I try to say, hey, man, it's never too late. And anyone listening to this in Australia, you know, every, you know, whether it's drugs, whatever the fuck you got going on, man, you can turn the corner. You just, every fucking day, you gotta, you just have to say, Today's my day one. Today's going to be the day one. I'm going to fucking, I'm going to just maintain today. I'm going to work my program. And when they said that to me in prison, what's your program? When I went, I was on Scared Straight in 78. And we went to Maximum Security Prison, Rawway. And these dudes were the lifers group. They're never getting out. And they said, what, what's your program? And I was like, I don't have no program. They're like, you better get one. And that's where I started seeing all of the connections between all this stuff and being able to forgive yourself for the mistakes that you made. People want to punish themselves and have guilt over everything, but you have to be able to forgive yourself. I, I, I talk forgiveness is a big thing in this book, and I had to be able to do that too. But the thing was with these prisoners, like I told Paul and then we pitched it to Kip and Paul really helped me develop the whole concept, Paul the Gelder, and we took it to Kip and Kip took it to his people, investors, and they were like, we're in. And then the first day we met the prisoners, and these guys, you know, they're walking, and they done, one guy did 40 years. Like, they've been in gladiator school, the riots in San Quentin and fucking Chino and, and the shoe, Pelican Bay. These are real motherfuckers, and they smell the bullshit. You want to talk about bullshit detectors? They know. So it was this guy, Keith, he's this ex-NFL football player who got paralyzed and was going to be in a wheelchair and healed himself through yoga. And Paul, we were the mentors, mainly me and Paul. And we sat in the room with these guys. And, and when I told my story, they were like, it resonated with them. You saw the light come on. They're like, oh, shit, you know, homeboy been where we were. Not as long. And the biggest, toughest motherfucker in that group was like, I can't believe y'all care enough about us to come and do this for us. And he broke, he had to leave the room. He broke, broke down. down crying. There was a lot of emotional. This one kid was in foster homes and molested and fucking, and he wrote this beautiful song. And then, you know, I was like, yo, it was a lot of emotional shit, man. That shit moved us to tears. These guys had never been even to the ocean. Paul took them swimming. Paul took them fucking 
They'd never been in the ocean. They were like little kids. And Paul took them in the ocean. And Paul had them jumping out of planes. This is all being filmed? This is going to be a series on Netflix called 30 to Life. When's that locked again? Next year. Next year. It's being edited now. So it's it's it, it wrapped. It's in the can. And now the edit. Part of it is is food. It's- 100% plant-based diet. We put them on. We had a chef from uh, Cordon Bleu who is vegan. This guy, Jay. What did they, did they have interesting they questions? They fucking loved it. They loved the food. They got shown forks over knives and and what the health and like. The fucking light bulb came on, and this one guy, he was in his seventies. He was he kept saying, "And the vegan diet," and and you want to hear some shit? This guy was in his seventies, and his mother and father were killed, and his uncle sold him to a plantation in the south, and he worked three hundred and sixty-five days a year in the cotton fields. And slavery was supposed to be, and the uncle took all the money from him. And then he ended up doing some crimes and everybody has a past, but you have to see everyone has the center of good with, within them. And, and that's what you got to look and, and they have that spark. And these guys were so respectful. Everybody, sir. Yes, sir. No, sir. Like the most humble, amazing. I, I'm still in contact with these guys. I just sent them a bunch of Everlast boxing equipment and, are you looking to have some sort of like ongoing program similar to that that can be rolled out? Is that what this is? Like, a- I mean, I think I, you know, I look, you know, I'm busy with a lot of stuff too, but I always let the chips fall where they may, you know, and, and see and see what happens. And Paul's busy too, and he's doing his thing, and you know, we all. But it uh, may it may even inspire someone else. Yeah, that's the whole thing. Is like we proved. That in fucking 30 days, what we were able to do to these guys, man, and, and because people cared about them and showed compassion. And the world is becoming so cold and so callous, and it's not cool to care about people and show emotions and everybody's... That's all bullshit. That's all bullshit. The real deal is to have compassion, and, and compassion starts on the plate. And I said that too. When I stopped eating meat, something clicked. And I don't know what the fuck it was. Something in my consciousness where all that anger was there, it just clicked. And I went on this whole journey of self-discovery. And I still chant Hare Krishna to this day and and, and, and meditate every day and train every day and, and look to do service every day to somebody, for somebody. There's nothing, nothing more fulfilling than serving other people. Dude, that's it. The service and the humility that's supposed to be there. There's, there's, there's uh, the Shishtashtaka verses. One of them is Trinatapi Sunay One should think of himself lower than the straw in the street. And you know what's under the straw in the street in India? Stool. Devoid of all sense of false prestige, always ready to offer respect and service to others, more tolerant than a tree. In that state of consciousness, one can constantly chant the holy names of Hare Krishna. So that tells you right there what it's all about. It's not about, you know, these guys with this fake fucking tough guy bullshit. 
the toughest motherfuckers I ever met are the most humble, you know, even hanging out with Joe Rogan and all these MMA fighters and fucking guys that are SEALs and Green Berets and fucking seeing crazy shit we can never even imagine. They're the most humble people, always fucking grounded. I think it was Joe Frazier said, you know what the most peaceful room is? A room full of real fighters. Because they don't have nothing to prove. It's everybody that thinks I got something to prove. And now it's become a joke because I grew up on in streets in New York and these streets. And everybody was so respectful because your life could end by saying the wrong thing very easily. And you come up through that. And now it's like, we're getting outro music here. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so everybody was respectful. So now it's a lot. It's Everything's a lot different. But I don't care what everybody else is doing. I just have to live my life and, and keep putting the good message out there, you know, by example. And what did Prabhupada say? Example is better than precept. There's a lot of talking motherfuckers out there. But who's setting the right example? And I look to those people, the rich roles, you know, all these super athletes and, and super humans that are doing amazing things to help other human beings, you know, all these plant-based doctors, Garth Davis, Joel Kahn, Robert Osfeld, that are just out there to save lives and save people. And, and I just, we had Krishna Das come and chant to the inmates and they, Fucking, it was, it was unbelievable. It was like, there's so many people that are out there doing compassionate work and helping people. And that's who I want to be around. You know, maybe what they got will rub off, you know. You mentioned Joe Rogan. We're getting to the end of this episode, but did you listen to his podcast with Dr. Joel Kahn? And yeah. What did you think? Ah, they kept cutting him off. And that thing about that guy. Not Joe, but the other guy. The studies, because I had lunch. I, I met with Joel Kahn after he did Rogan in New York. He was at the Meadowlands to do something. And all the studies that that guy was citing actually said not to eat meat. He, he just kept talking shit out of his ass. And then they were cutting off, you know, Dr. Kahn. And, it was a little bit two-sided. Yeah. They ganged up, you know, a little bit, but they got their, uh, you know, whatever the fuck. Uh, you know, look, I had a great podcast with Joe. He wasn't going to get me to go hunting and I wasn't going to get him to stop hunting. So we met on a lot of other levels of different stuff. And the thing is, is like I got thousands of emails after that of people wanting to check out the plant based shit. They were like, awesome. yo, you have such a great attitude about it. You don't have a stick up your fucking ass like some of these people. and fucking thinking they're better than everybody else. And that's why even in Meters of Pussies, I have a chapter, you know, vegan, the five-letter curse word, because a lot of these people have the wrong attitude and it turns people off. 100%. You know, and it's like, dude, it's not about that. Have some fucking humility. Yeah, you got a little bit of fucking knowledge born in somebody else. That doesn't make you a fucking better human being. You're actually a shitty human being because of your attitude. We need to be more welcoming and less forceful yeah. with the whole message because whenever you whenever you force try and force anything on anyone, you know, that's when resistance comes. So 
You know, that's the whole thing in getting back to the media of pussies. The ones who tried to destroy my whole shit and got me was the vegans. The vegan fucking people wrote fucking, uh, wrote Brian Wendell, did forks over knives, take down your endorsement of this book. They tried to, like, Kip, Kip had me fucking doing the Q&A for what the health. They were like, if he comes, we're boycotting. They... Like they've they just gone out of their way. And meanwhile, here's a book that's helped tens and thousands of men to eat healthier, to eat less animals. In a lot of cases, go completely plant based. How are you going to knock that? I come from the streets. You don't you don't know where I've been. One lady was like, oh, he's a fucking scumbag, misogynist, fucking all this shit. I'm like what I did to her. I just had all I, I, I posted up any woman who bought this book for their men who changed their lives because of this book. Could you write this fucking bitch and tell her something? And she got fucking hundred, like a thousand fucking emails and was like, this guy's fucking insane. He had his rabid fans. And I said, I'm going to tell you something right now. We got a saying on the street. Don't start none and there won't be none. I said. I'm out here in the fucking areas you could never go. I walk into hell to help people. I've been feeding the homeless since fucking 82 in New York City, plant-based meals. I fucking go speak at prisons and fucking, I was like, you don't do shit. You sit behind your fucking keyboard and try to destroy people's lives. That's your life. You're fucking pathetic. And I left it at that and I just, you know, but 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 they still have continued on like and they'll probably find something even with this next book and be like, hey, he wrote me this for pussies. Don't you know, you know what they say? The dogs may bark, but the elephants have to carry on. They ain't doing shit. That's what they are. A bunch of barking. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fucking chihuahuas. Always going to be these keyboard warriors, isn't there? That's what it's about, you know. So. Last thing I wanted to go through with you, I saw a collaboration with Brian Rose. The oh, Iron yeah, Mind. that's coming out tomorrow, Iron Mind. Yeah, we What's did. What's this all about? Well, you know, thing was we played in London and the, his producer was vegan and she's like, you got to have this guy on. He has all like A-list, pers- A-list. For people that don't don't know, Brian Rose hosts London, London Real. Real. London Real, hopes, which is a huge show. It's fucking gigantic. He has all super fucking stars on his shit. He's like, I never heard of the guy. Like, She's like, no, you got to have him on. I came on. I did sound check in London, and they sent a fucking car, picked me up, took me to the fucking show. I did the show, and we hit it off. And he's like, yeah, I used to live in New York. I had some bad things happen, and then we kept in touch Found out he was doing fucking dope. He OD'd, he almost died, all this crazy shit. His story's pretty amazing. He was fucking MIT, making huge money on Wall Street, and got into the fucking dope. And Iron Mind. And so Iron Mind, I was like, you got to come back to New York and face your fucking demons, man, because he's never been back since that crazy shit happened. So I convinced him to come back, and then I was like, you're going to do this half Iron Man, Iron Man with me, a 70.3, half Iron Man distance, and you're going to do it on a plant-based diet. And by the time he left, I got him to commit to it. We worked with Samantha Murphy, 
my coach from Evolve Coaching Systems. She coaches athletes all over the world to go to Kona, podium, everything. She's fucking, she's legit. And she coached and we filmed the whole shit. How'd he go? It went, it went great. The whole race. Uh, did, he, did he like the food? He, yeah, he loved it. He got his wife. I sent, he's like, what book should I get? So I told him all the cookbooks, Rich Rolls cookbooks and Candle 79's cookbooks. and Great restaurant. Yeah, those are my friends. They do a lot of philanthropic work, those people. Joy and Bart and Benet, they're always fucking helping people. And I got a couple of restaurants in New York, yeah? Yeah, they got Candle Cafe, Candle 79, and Candle Cafe West. West, yeah. Yeah, and just great human beings. So Brian Rose, he enjoyed it? He, he loved it. Yeah, he loved it. And uh, yeah, he loved the food. I don't know what he's doing now, but we did the race. Race went great. He faced a lot of demons that he had to deal with. And I mean, the movie premiered in London and he was like, dude, the audience, it was sold out. Everybody, they were like, the fucking audience was. How long does it go for? An hour and 40 minutes. Awesome. And it was like, people were fucking laughing, dying, laughing, crying. It was just like emotional roller coaster. I'll put the link in, yeah. in the show notes along with the, the links to your Yeah, books. it airs live tomorrow on YouTube or whatever the okay. hell. So, I mean, I know this ain't going to post till then, but. People will be able to find it. I'll, yeah. po- I'll post the link. Now, so I'm super excited to, to read the PMA effect. You said a quote before, which is ringing my mind that it's not what happens to someone. It's what they do about it. Yeah. And I just want to thank you for what you're doing because you're certainly having a positive impact on the world and even just raising awareness around training our minds. So often we, we focus on what we can see training our bodies and we forget about this thing that sits between our two ears and how important it is to, to give attention to that and train it and, and grow it. So thank you for bringing out this, this book on positive mental attitude. I look forward to reading it. I, well, you know what I say about that? It took me four years to write it, but it took me a lifetime of, of, of lessons in the School of Hard Knocks and the University of the Street and everything I had to go through. It culminates in that book and, and, and you know, lessons from the ancient yoga systems down to the homeless person on the street. I tell this one story about this guy and we used to feed him at the park. And I knew he had a story. He would never want to talk, this white guy. And that's why I say never fucking judge nobody because you don't know. My nephew came back from Iraq and was fucking homeless. And, but this guy never would talk. And then one day he, we just had a conversation and it turned out he was a big Wall Street guy. And his wife and kids were upstate and they got in a car accident and they died. And he lost everything. Just one day, it was all gone. Everything, his life, his fucking daughters, his wife, everything. And then he started drinking. And then he had to do coke to go to work. And then pills to go to sleep. And then he stopped showing up for work. Then he lost his apartment. And then he was sleeping under the fucking FDR in a fucking, under, in a cardboard box. And, and he even said, he was about to jump off the Manhattan Bridge and his kids came in his mind's eye. And he was like, 
they wouldn't want me to end this way. They always wanted to see me happy. Now think about the, the fucking intestinal fortitude that guy had to climb out and go to a shelter finally and get a job and fucking climb his way out of that shit. You, you can't even imagine. It's the stories in there and the people I've met in my lifetime. And that's why people need to be thankful every single day. My friend, right before I did Kona the first time, he, he did time in prison and then he relapsed and died. Fell down the stairs in the subway. Right the week before Kona, he was in a coma. I went and said my goodbyes and they took him off life support and he died. And I had to go to Kona with that. And one thing he always said was, any day above ground is a good day, Johnny. You know, and, and, and people need to be thankful and appreciate that. You know, I just was, my mom just had a heart attack and fucking you go in the hospital and you see people clinging to fucking life. We take so much for granted. And I'll just leave this one thing, like even, even having a, a, a physical body that works, people just walk down the street, they're disconnected from each other. They're in their little devices in their worlds. There's no communication between people anymore. It's becoming like a thing of the past. And then I saw this man with cerebral palsy and he had to use a walker and he was in his 20s and he was smiling and it took him fucking 15 minutes to get down one block. And his attitude, he was just... Uh, people, you, you just have to appreciate life and, and, and be thankful for the gifts and always look to the positive. You know, even if you're in a dark place, you can climb out of there. That's the message of that book. That's why I wrote it. Always look to the positive. Yes, sir. And it's an honor to be on your podcast. You're Finally. a bad motherfucker, dude. We, 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 I follow we, you on Instagram. <laughs> we meant to do it back yeah, in Yeah, man. But, well, I hope it was worth it. It's, it's, it's worth it. And I know that you've got We've only just scratched the surface. You've got so many stories and, and such a wealth of knowledge. I'm sure we'll connect again. If you yeah. Get your- well, I'll put the links if anybody wants. You know, I got the, the evolution of a Cro-Magnon and I did it on an audio book. Yeah, all the links to all the books. Are yeah, all, all that shit. You know, so yeah, man. Just click below, guys, and you can see everything that great John Joseph. I hope I see you on the walking tour tomorrow. I'm going to be there tomorrow. Yeah, it's 3 p.m. Be- 3 p.m. at the Cube. You know, I got, uh, you mentioned I got Dr. Osfeld on the show tomorrow morning. Oh, that's my dude. Montefiore, putting people on a plant-based diet. He is a fucking bad motherfucker. I love that dude. He's, give him a big hug for me, man. I love that brother. All right. Thank you, man. And that's the end of this episode of the Plant Proof Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me again. I hope there are a few golden nuggets that you can take from this conversation, which can positively affect your own life. If you do have any friends or family members, colleagues, etc., that you think would enjoy this episode and the topics we discussed, please share the link. Together, we can make this world a healthier place by sharing real agenda-free content. If you have any personal feedback about the show, reviews on iTunes or stories on Instagram or private messages on Instagram are all greatly appreciated. I read them all and I share many of them with the Plant Proof community. Wherever you are, I hope you're having a really good day full of good vibes, good energy and delicious plant foods. Keep on smiling, plant friends. See you next episode.